Welcome again this morning to those of you who are here and those who will watch online or listen to the sermon podcast later. We're in a short series, understanding what it means to be a gathered community that is called, that is called together to glorify God in worship. So I commend last week's sermon to you. Just don't listen to it now if you're here. Last week, Pastor Dave shared about the vision of worship found in Isaiah 6, the same passage that Mark read for us this morning. In Isaiah 6, we find a pattern for worship. We gather to worship our God, high and holy, to gaze upon him, to yearn for his goodness, for his beauty and grace. But being a community together is more than experiencing worship together on Sundays. Our identity is more than gathering on Sunday. Worship is about living all of our lives with God. It's about being sent out to be God's people in all the world. Now, we trust that the Holy Spirit will inspire you on Sundays with some unique inspiration, some takeaway, some song that encourages you, a formational challenge to take into your week. Worship might be considered a perfect flow from Sunday to Sunday. Well, it would be perfect, except we're imperfect people who are worshiping a perfect God. Imperfect people like that preacher Isaiah, he's aware that he is a preacher of unclean lips, surrounded by people with unclean lips, and only the refining action of God can redeem them so that they can live into their true purpose. And that's real life for us, too. Real life in the community means we need God's redeeming work in our lives. We are redeemed, but we're a work in progress. Our passage this morning from the Gospel of Matthew describes how to deal with some of the messiness of that real life in the church. Listen to what Jesus told the disciples about unclean lips and hurtful actions in the church. But first, let's pray. Gracious God, I am a preacher of unclean lips, seeking to bring your perfect word to our hearts and minds this morning. Through your Holy Spirit, refine my words and help us all to learn and grow as people in community together, siblings together, all for the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. So listen to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, verses 15 to 22. If another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, you have regained that one. But if you are not listened to, take one or two others along with you, so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If the member refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you, if the two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? 
Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, the timing of this sermon is rather interesting. This week, I said to Pastor Dave, did we really schedule a message on church conflict and church discipline on New Member Sunday? <laughs> but it fits, actually, because this is the reality. We are not a church of perfect people. Is anyone here perfect? Raise your hand if you are. <laughs> I hope this isn't a surprise to you, new members. We're all people that need Jesus. We all need grace. Yes, this is a good and loving place, but it surely isn't perfect. We hope that you will want to share real life with each other. We hope that people are not just coming on Sundays for a performance, even if the music is pretty awesome. We hope that you are embracing coming to be part of a family of believers, a child of God, siblings together. You know, families experience each other in a real, unvarnished way. You know what I mean? They experience the beautiful and the not-so-beautiful. You know, and in families, sometimes conflict arises and an offense happens, and you can either address it and grow through it, or you can become disenchanted and move on to a different church. It's hard to leave your family, but people find it easy to leave a church. But you might find the same problems in the next church because there are no perfect people. So I've actually been studying this topic of church conflict for a few months now. A few months ago, I went to a week-long course in mediation training for church conflict. We studied the theology of peacemaking. We studied theories of human development. We had plenty of role play about um, experiences, and, and we... Uh, I left with a stack of books on the topic that I've been reading through. There they are. Now, don't worry. There isn't some deep conflict at our church that you don't know about. But in my half-time job as the stated clerk for the Presbytery, that's our regional group of congregations that I serve, I have a job of overseeing church discipline and guiding churches in conflict. And at this mediation course, there were pastors and leaders from a variety of denominations from all over the country. We did a lot of study, a lot of role play, and I'm proud to say I got high marks for my acting and my role play. But the sad truth is, the sad truth is I was just remembering and saying hurtful things I'd heard people say in churches. Sin often happens when one or more people in a conflict respond about the differences that they're experiencing with contempt or anger. And here's what we learn from Jesus' teaching about responding to offenses in the church. First, like most important things in life, there are no shortcuts. It's a deliberate, slow, step-by-step -step process. If you're familiar with Jesus' teachings, you might notice that his instructions in this passage, there are a lot of details. There's very clear instruction. First, go to the person, take these following careful steps, widening involvement with others as necessary. And if you were to look through the Gospels, you'd note Jesus rarely provides this much detailed process information about the church, this gathering of his called out ones. Jesus talks a lot about the values of the kingdom of God, but practical matters about the church, you don't find a lot of this in the Gospels. 
which means we really ought to follow this, right? It's important enough to be specific. But I think we also need something else. We need the moral imagination to know that this long process is worth it. So this was an idea I was exploring in my books. Moral imagination transcends our emotional system of reaction to a situation and our rational way of thinking through. A moral imagination imagines a moral universe defined by God's grace and truth. A moral imagination perceives hope that can be found in pursuing God's grace and truth in the middle of a messy situation when you can't see the outcome. So as we engage in conversations with those we disagree with, we have to be self-aware about how we as humans are wired. Our emotional system is connected to our physical reaction. It works fast, and it's not necessarily something we're conscious of happening. You know, our hearts race, our stomachs react, and our emotions overtake us. In our reasoning system, this is slower, it's more conscious, it's a little more developed and self-filtering. Both our emotional and our reasoning systems about conflict, they're first developed during our childhood in the midst of our unique family and cultural context, and then we grow as adults and we have more experiences that form us. In our moral system, our moral imagination, that's slower to kick in, and that is the work of our discipleship. It requires prayer for the Holy Spirit to inspire us. It requires listening to God's word, and often we have to be helped by the insights of those who have spiritual wisdom that we trust. Jesus' process of the additional witnesses, that's part of that emotional system. So this is why Jesus suggests this slow and deliberate process. We need to slow down to engage wisdom and self-awareness. And in times of conflict, we need to recognize we're not always fully innocent. We want to be self-aware of what we contribute. Remember what Isaiah said, woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah is aware that he is a fallible human being when he sees the holiness of God, reflecting on the holiness of God, the moral imagination of grace and truth coming together. So in times of conflict or a potential for conflict, we need to be self-aware, slow down, pause and pray, and let Jesus' instructions guide us. And secondly, the instruction from Jesus that we can trust is that transformative conflict is possible, and it can bring us close to Jesus. Conflict can be healthy. Conflict can be transformative. Sometimes avoiding conflict is avoiding community, avoiding life together, avoiding an opportunity for growth or for change. In my conflict resolution course, we studied this passage from Matthew. It would be bad if we didn't, right? It's obvious. Of course, these verses were familiar to us, a group of Christian leaders, but one thing that jumped out for us was that there are two verses that we frequently find out of context. 
These verses, verse 19 and 20, again, truly I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there among them. Now, I've seen this used out of, a con- out of context in the form of a promise for a prayer gathering. But this is what the promise actually is. The promise is that when we do that hard work, when we seek reconciliation and grace, when we seek to give forgiveness and receive forgiveness with a sibling in our church, Jesus is right there. Jesus is right there. Jesus will give what we ask. When we bravely wade into hurt and conflict, when we speak the truth in love, when we hear the truth about our own sinful self, even as we confront another, all of these things are close to the heart of Jesus. And isn't that what we want, to be close to Jesus? But this is hard. I know it's easier said than done. I know that after I was betrayed, wronged in a church conflict, I was fired from a church, I had an organized group for reconciliation from that church seek to meet with me. After some time had elapsed, I could both see my culpability for the failed relationship at the core of that conflict, and I could receive a true apology from them. I was surprised to experience some holy moments in the midst of that formal process. I was able to forgive. Jesus was in the midst helping me. And I truly believe that that experience gave the freedom for me to be here in community with you, with freedom and openness. Finally, the third lesson from Jesus in this passage reminds us that our calling is to be forgiven people who forgive others, regardless of the outcome of the process between the offender and the offended. Jesus, Peter asks, Peter asks Jesus, how many times do we forgive? Seven times? Now, seven is a good number. It's a number that symbolizes completion and holiness. But no, Peter, not seven times, says Jesus, I tell you, 77 times. Wow. Jesus has a step-by-step process for reconciliation, but then he knows the human heart. We're good at counting grievances, aren't we? And limiting grace. We could come up with eight things and say, we're not forgiving you for that eighth thing. We're good at being people who count and hold on to grievances. So he refuses to quantify with a smaller number. Forgiveness doesn't mean, though, that we should capitulate or compromise on issues that are important, issues of justice and safety. I just have to say this at this point. Too often, this call for forgiveness has been wrongly used to shame an abused person who needs protection from their abuser in the midst of domestic violence. No one should be abused, certainly not seven times or 77 times. And I'm also a fierce defender of safe church practices for protecting vulnerable people, children, zero tolerance for those that don't follow the rules. Forgiving someone doesn't mean we give an abuser another chance. But sometimes, if we don't react to a grievance, we sit with it and it festers and it adds grievance upon grievance. Maybe someone has hurt us 
and we're adding to that hurt by letting it fester. And maybe it gets up to 77 offenses in our own heart. An offense doesn't just disappear, right? It's a thing that has life. It will have some lasting effect, and the offended one will have to respond to that thing in some way. And here are the usual options. Fight or flight, right? That's a reaction when we feel threatened. But sometimes in the church, we're good at fester. We fester, and it festers, and those offenses multiply, and we act and react. But of all of these responses, friends, only forgiveness will bring shalom, peace, and growth. There was something I read that was really profound in my studies, and it's this quote, the reconciliation process is not just forgive and forget, but remember and change. John Lederach in The Moral Imagination. Do you think that's true? What should be the outcome from forgiveness? We've heard this forgive and forget, but can you truly forget? Is that right? It reminded me of the wonderful opportunity that some of us had to meet the Reverend Julie Kandima from Rwanda, a Presbyterian peacemaker who visited our church in October. Some of you were here. She shared about her call to ministry to heal her people in Rwanda. You remember the horrendous genocide against the Tutsis in 1994. One million people killed, 400,000 orphans, rape and unwanted pregnancies, devastation and despair. And here's a picture that Julie shared, a list of pastors and congregants murdered in the church, her church, who were murdered in the sanctuary. Church members killed other church members and pastors in the sanctuary. The church failed to set itself apart from this madness, from this evil, and it's hard to fathom. How can there be forgiveness and reconciliation? How could a young woman survivor like Julie choose to be part of the church, choose to be called by God to serve the church? How does the church even survive? And yet, In their process of reconciliation, God's grace has overcome them, and they have truly experienced reconciliation. Oh, there's still hardship. There's still loss. But they haven't forgiven and forgotten. They've remembered and changed. As a pastor, Julie is trusted, and she trusts the church. The church has been renewed. And here's a picture of hope. Some of the young women that she mentors and cares for women whose families were devastated, women she invited us to pray for when she came and visited with us. Now, I can't fathom God's power to be able to heal in this circumstance. I can only share what is witnessed from a sibling in Christ, from a sister who shared. You know, Jesus tells us whatever we bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever we loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Isn't that what we pray for in the Lord's Prayer on earth as it is in heaven? Can we be really surprised that in some places it comes true? That's why we gather. That's why when offenses occur, we do the hard reconciliation work so that our church is a taste of heaven, that our church is part of God's reconciling work of grace and truth. 
So let's remember those three things that Jesus tells us. There are no shortcuts. Follow the process, slow, deliberate process. We need it to be slow and deliberate. And remember that we can trust that Jesus is in that reconciliation process. He is there wherever two or more gather, seeking peace. And ultimately, we remember that Jesus invites us to be forgiven people who forgive others. And why? All for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, who bids us to come close and wants to send us out to be people of grace and truth in the world. And all the church said, amen. <laughs> <laughs>